Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. We're in our uh, second to the last uh, lesson in First Peter this morning. We're going to be looking looking at verses verses uh, five through eleven of chapter five. Um, I entitled this section "Exhortations to the Congregation." It's just a, that's what it is. It's a series of exhortations that Peter uh, gives here at the end, uh, and he. Uh, 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 they're, they're intended to just kind of encourage and remind and uh, uh, keep a, a, a group of churches, because he's written to more than one church in this, in this letter. It's, it's been sent around. Uh, but he's to encourage them uh, in times of trial and suffering that, uh, that some of them are undergoing and many of them will be undergoing in the future. And so he, uh, he, 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 uh, he uh, now uh, writes these letters. And a theme, uh, the theme that has, themes that have run through this book are, 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 um, are the, the theme of, of suffering that Christians do in this life. We, we live in a foreign, foreign land, basically, that is hostile toward us. And uh, 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 as a result of that, uh, very often it it uh, it causes those who would be opposed to the gospel to uh, to uh, uh, to uh, bring about persecution so that 's one of the one of the things that he deals with in in this and the and the other thing is that as christians we 're to live lives in submission to God and to his order and there 's just a series of uh, submissions that are that are brought up in this in this text uh, or in this book and uh, this particular section begins with one of those uh, a very specific one and we're going to we're going to look at that as we move through uh, but the first uh, the first I, I entitled these first uh, three ver- or five six seven yeah three verses as uh, as being humble uh, that's uh, kind of the theme that runs through this and uh, so that's where we're going to look here in just a minute. Are there any any prayer requests this morning? Yeah. I have okay, good. I got hired next year. Oh, good. That's always good. <laughs> I'm still retired for next year, but anyway. Uh, no, it's no. You don't want to. You don't want to rush it because there's something that goes along with that. So yeah, old. <laughs> that's, that's that's what it is. Uh, but at any rate, at any rate, uh, anything else this morning? Well, let, let's just take a moment and open in prayer then, if, if you would. Father God, we thank you this morning as we as we come to this text, and we ask Father as a, we look at this text that your your Spirit would would lead us, guide us, teach us in this text. Uh, that we might be better prepared for the future we may face, uh, that these exhortations would would encourage us, would strengthen us, would build us up, and as you come to in the final part of these verses, make us complete in him for for that is uh, is the goal of sanctification to bring us to that point that when we go to heaven it won 't be a big change. And well, Father, we just ask that uh, uh, that that would be the case here this morning. That we would we would grow in your grace and in your word. That we would be comforted by these words. We would be strengthened by these words. We would be prepared by these words. That we would be on the alert that these words call us to. 
And Father, we just ask now that as we as we approach this text, uh, as we you would open our hearts, you would open our minds, you would cause us to grow in grace, and we would thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, so he begins. Uh, he begins by saying, "You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all you, and all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another." For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in proper time. Casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. And that's where we will, that's where we'll cut it this morning. So the first thing he, the first thing he does is he addresses the young men in the congregation. And he says to those young men, uh, that he exhort, and he says, this is an, he's exhorting them. He is, he is calling them. It's, it's in the imperative. It's a command, incidentally. And he says to the young men, he says, he says, uh, uh, uh therefore exhort, uh, or excuse me, uh, Therefore, uh, I'll get to the right verse in a minute. Verse 5, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And so he's saying here, he's telling, he's calling the younger men, that means those who are younger, those are, that are grown, but they're young men. And he says to them, he says to them that they are to be subject Likewise, which means in the same way, and, and, it, and it indicates that he's changing focus. And what he's changing focus from is in the first four verses, he addressed the elders. Uh, he, he, ad- he addressed the elders, the overseers, the pastors. Those three words are all interchangeable. And, and, he's, and he says of them, and he's, and he's called them uh, to be to be. To do that task, to be the t- task of those men who lead, who oversee, who, who shepherd the flock of God. They're to do it willingly and they're to be examples. And, and here he is saying that in this case, the younger are to be submissive to the older. And some translate it that way. Uh, not meaning church leaders, but meaning just young guys got to be nice to old guys. Is, is kind of the way, uh, the way some translate this verse. Uh, we'll talk about that just a little bit. Uh, but it, but it, it could be, it could be, it could be uh, taken in the sense, if you use it that way, uh, that, uh, that uh, the younger are to have respect for the older generation. That's kind of the idea. And that's a biblical statement, incidentally. That's not an untruth. That is, that's, we'll, we'll pick that up here in just a minute. And some take it to mean that. Here, here that elder here is referring to age, presbyteros can be can can be used that way. In fact, that's its basic meaning. Its basic meaning is those who are older. Uh, in the in the Hebrew, the Hebrew uh, uh, word that would would translate to presbyteros, uh, it basically means gray beard. And and uh, well. You know, if I let mine grow out, it would be gray. So that's that's the bottom line. Uh, it's gray. It's those who are who have who have reached some some uh, some uh, milestone in 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 uh, longevity, I suppose. It's used that way in First Timothy one five, where where he where he basically says he tells younger men there they're not to sharply rebuke an elder. And it doesn't mean church leader, it means an older man. Because then it goes on to say how you treat, how younger men are to treat each other, and then how older women are to be treated, and how younger women are to be treated. So it's all talking here about, about gender and age in, 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 first, in, in first Timothy 5, the first, first verses of First Timothy 5. However, in 5.17, 
he changes, same word, presbyteros, and he's talking about church leaders, and it's apparent he's talking about church leaders there. And there it's talking, not talking about age, but talking about the function of an elder, which is how I take this particular verse, incidentally. That's who he's talking to. He's saying, he's saying that the younger men are to be in subjection to elders. Now, the question might rise in your mind, why would he address younger men only in this statement? Well, you know, I stopped and I pondered on that, and I read some of the things other people said about it. But one of the things I was thinking was, there was a time that I can almost remember when I was one of those. Uh, and uh, the fact of the matter is, when you're one of those, you're full of, you're full of spit and vinegar, you know. You think you know everything. You think you've got the world by, a ta- by the tail. Uh, you, uh, uh, you don't need anybody. And you're trying to break the strings from parenting and all that, from parents and that kind of thing. And you're trying to uh, do it on your own and stand on your, two f- your own two feet. And if you're an American, of course, you know, you've got to uh, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and all of that kind of stuff. But that's how young men think. I, I, I recalled one of the things that having raised five of them, five of them, uh, it, uh, it, uh, it also reminded me of an event, well, there were a number of events, but this one in particular is a good one, uh, where one of my sons, he and his wife, were, were uh, they hadn't been married too long, and they were moving into a new apartment. They had one that was kind of a studio apartment. They were moving into an actual apartment, you know, with actual rooms. And, uh, uh, and, and so I was asked... Because I had a truck. You know, if you have a truck, you always get asked to do things. But at any rate, everybody with a truck is shaking their head. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But anyway, anyway, uh, uh, I was asked to help move. Now, I wasn't really being asked so much for physical strength, although in those days I still had some. Uh, uh, but more for, you know, transportation and that kind of thing. You know, so we get to the house, and they're moving stuff in. And, and of course, does anybody live on the first floor of an apartment house? It's always the second. <laughs> Second floor, you know, but 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 at any rate, anyway, they're moving into the second floor, and they got this refrigerator, and it's a pretty big refrigerator, one of these double door ones, pretty wide, pretty thick, and they got a staircase that makes a one eight, uh, yeah, one eighty, like this, and these, and he's got four or five young men with him helping move the stuff, and they grab this refrigerator, and I'm looking at them, and I'm said. You guys need to take the doors off to make that turn. And they go, oh, no, we can do it. (laughs) They got in the turn, and all five of them, the four helpers and my son, and the refrigerator were all stuck in the turn. (laughs) They couldn't move. So I said, you got to take off the doors. They were determined not to take off the doors. They lifted the refrigerator over their heads so that it was above the rail, and they finally got it up on the top. See, we made it, you know. And then they got to the front door, and they had to take off the doors to get in the house. (laughs) That's young men. My son later says to me, I guess sometimes you ought to listen to experience, huh? And I said, hmm, depends on how much work you want to do. You know, but anyway, because one thing about old guys, they know how to do things easy. <laughs> but anyway, but anyway, that was the, that was, that was, that's the idea here. Young men think they know how to do it, and nobody should tell them. Peter is saying to them, that's not the way we function in the church. 
you submit yourselves to the elders. That's what you do. The idea here to be subject is the same term that's been used throughout it. That's why it says likewise in the same manner. It refers back to, to, to chapter 3, verses 1 and verses 7, uh, seven where, it, where it says be subject to, where, 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 uh, wives, where we're, we're called to be subject to government, where wives are called to be subject to, to husbands. In that context, there's a whole bunch of other things that this being subject to is implied. And, and it basically says we're to be, as citizens, we're to be subject. Likewise, as citizens are subject, subject to civil authority, 213 through 14, servants to masters, 218 and following, wives to husbands, 3, 1 through 6, husbands and honoring their wives, 5 through, uh, and then in 5, 1 through 4, Elders are called to shepherd the flock. Acts twenty verse uh, twenty eight, First Timothy five seventeen, Hebrews three seventeen says, "Likewise, then younger men be subject to your elders." That's that's what it's calling them to. That's what it's calling to. They're kind of singled out here because they're kind of a special group. Well, they're a hard headed group, I guess. Uh, but at any rate, and then he goes on and he says, he says, he says, along with this. Submission, all of you, meaning the entire church, everybody in the church. This, this is leadership down. Well, not that it's, uh, there's any down, but everybody. It's, it's all encompassing is what he's saying here. He's saying the whole church, you are to be clothed, you're to clothe yourself with humility toward one another. That's what he says here now. He says, you're to be, you're to be clothed in humility. Humility is a word that basically has the meaning of loneliness of mind. It even can mean, mean to be uh, self-abasing. In other words, you, this is not the picture of medieval monks in monasteries beating themselves with a whip to bring themselves into subjection. It's not that idea. But it's the idea that, uh, that uh, I step back. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't make, I don't have to be in front. I don't have to be uh, the one that everybody's looking to. I don't have to be uh, hailed or uh, respected or not respected. That's where all the respect one another. But I'm not to be uh, uh, praised. praised. That's the word I'm looking for. I'm not to be praised and, and glorified. That's, that's the idea here. It has the idea of willing to serve each other no matter what the task. And this is not a popular this is not a popular idea. Humility is not a popular idea. Uh, today's society looks upon somebody who they would say is humble, they see see them as somebody who is lesser, somebody who is weak, somebody who is not who uh, can't take it, who has to have a crutch. Those those kind of things. That's the way it's seen. Incidentally, the uh, the Greco-Roman world saw it the same way. Aggression, strength, and power were what they looked to, not humility. And humility has never been the thing that man uh, that man looks to. Um, Jesus said in, Ma- in Matthew twenty verse twenty six, "Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant." And in Philippians chapter two, we're given the the ultimate example of humility in Christ Jesus, uh, because in five five through seven, uh, Paul writes. 
Have this way of thinking in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God to be a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of a man. man. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even uh, even death on a cross." And that's the example of, of ultimate humility, is, is that God, the Son, took your place on that cross. He took your penalty. He humbled himself. Though he could have wiped the existence of everything created out with a word, he chose rather to become a servant to, to the creation and save them. That's that's the picture he's talking about here. You know, I was I was uh, I was thinking about this too as is uh, uh, an example of how our society has has changed and how it looks upon service. Back in World War One, uh, there's a poster that came out, and it was a picture of Uncle Sam, and he's got his finger out like this, and it says. Uncle Sam wants you in the United States Army. That poster ran through World War II. In 1950, it changed. And it became, become all you can be in the Army. And it went from that to other things like uh, an army of one, uh, we want warriors, um, be your own warrior. You know, it was all self-centered. And, and incidentally, they have gone back. I just read they came there. The new slogan is now the old slogan, be all you can be in the army. Uh, but it's all about me. Me is the self-centered. Me is the focus. Uh, not service the country, not service to God, but, but me, what, what I can do. Be all you can be in the army. Live in a foxhole in the mud. Uh, that's the same. Anyway, and anyhow, uh, Andrew Murray in his book, Humility, The Journey Toward Holiness, wrote this. When we realize that humility is something infinitely deeper than contrition and accept it as our participation in the life of Jesus, we'll, we, we'll begin to learn it is our true nobility and that to, and that to prove that it Being a servant of all is the highest fulfillment of our destiny as men created in the image of God. That was his statement on humility. He he sees it as the most noble act a Christian can do. And he says to be clothed, which is an interesting word. Um, This Greek word has the connotation of tying an apron or a cloth around your waist. That's what it means. Uh, and it basically what it pictures is in the in the Roman world, slaves would tie an apron or a towel of some kind, a cloth around their waist to identify them as slaves. It was the identification of being a servant. That was that was the identifying mark. And and uh, uh, and and. Uh, uh, in John thirteen four, that's the picture that Jesus gives us when he washed the disciples' feet. He laid aside his robes and tied a towel around him. He took the role of a servant. That's, that's the picture here. That's what this word clothe means. That's what he's saying. We are to clothe ourselves in, in servanthood, lowliness. Putting others before us—that's that's the that's the thrust that he's saying here. That's that's what he's saying here. 
uh, incidentally, you you also see this again in the in the entrance into Jerusalem, the triumphant entry uh, in Matthew twenty one five, where it says, "See your king coming to you, gentle and riding on a donkey." That's the idea of lowliness. Wasn't a great grand procession in a chariot with great war horses and all kinds of streamers and flags flying? It's riding on a donkey. You know, a lowly beast of burden was was the idea here. The same the same text can be found in the prophecy of this fulfilled text in Matthew is found in Zechariah nine nine. Peter goes from there and he quotes Proverbs uh, three uh, three uh, three three thirty four and he says God is opposed uh, is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. This same idea is found in James four six. He quotes this text as well. It says here, it says, God is opposed to the proud. You want to be, you want to be in battle with God? Be a prideful person. You know, ultimately, that's, that's the idea. Uh, th- that's what it's saying here. He says, he says, he says, he says, if you're, a, if you're a, a prideful person, then you're an enemy of God. You're a, po- he's opposed to you. It's not the best enemy to have. I wouldn't think anyway. He says, he's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace. He gives unmerited favor to those who operate in humility. Uh, that's, that's, that's the idea, he says. Humbling oneself is submission. And in so doing, I am avoiding divine opposition. With the result, I receive grace. I receive grace. If you came to Christ telling him how great you are, you probably didn't come to him. If you came to him understanding you had no merit, no value, no worth, you humbled yourself, he provided grace. That picture salvation. He says, therefore, the next, the next thing he says, therefore, under... Well, I'll get it here. Therefore, because God is opposed to the proud and gives grace... Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Uh, Humbling submission to the divine authority uh, is what he's calling us to calling us here. Uh, It's 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 the understanding that God is the ruler of all governments and all human affairs and relationships. Ultimately, he has the control over that. He he does that through providence right now. Uh, he providentially looks after us and cares for his own people. And that same providence rules governments. The things that are going on in government today, while they sometimes seem frightening and they seem ominous and they seem, uh, uh, um, I don't know what the best word is, uh, but cause us to be fretful, uh, the fact of the matter is God is in absolute control. He's in absolute control. Uh, he, he knows exactly what's going on. Uh, the, the text of Scripture tells us that God raises up governments and he takes them away. The kings answer to God, ultimately. They get, there is no authority but the authority that comes from God. And that's, that's, the, that's the bottom line here. He says, therefore, therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Mighty hand of God is a descriptive 
phrase that is often used in the in the Old Testament, especially Exodus three nineteen, Deuteronomy three twenty four, and a whole bunch of other places. That's just two examples. Uh, but it, it's descriptive. It's descriptive of God's rule and authority and leading Israel primarily. God had authority over all of that. He's the one that told the sea to open up and let Moses and the children of Israel pass through, and he's the one that told the sea to close up and take out take out take out the Egyptian army. He's the one that caused water to come out of the rock. He's the one that sent manna from heaven. Uh, he's the one that defeated the enemies when they went into the promised land. All of all of those things. He's the one who laid out the dividing lines of who got what portion of the land. Yeah, Joshua was the one who did it, but it was under the direction of God Almighty. Uh, those, are, those are those kind of things under the mighty hand of God. In the New Testament, it's, it's descriptive of God's, both his discipline of his people and his defense of his people. So, so that's, a, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about might and power. He says, he, says, he goes on, he says, he, he says, under the mighty hand of God, he's, he's the one that has all the power. That's, that's the idea that he's expressing here. He's, and he says, and as a result of that, if you humble yourself, if you, if you come before him humbly, because he's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, if you do that, he'll exalt you in the proper time. Exalt is a word that means to raise, uh, to raise or to lift up. Uh, basically, the idea here is that believers will be lifted up from trials and suffering at God's determined time. That's, that's, that's what, it's, that's what he's, he's, he's saying here. Uh, he says, at the proper time, you'll be exalted at the proper time. Which literally, there's a couple of ways this is taken by different theologians. And... They're really, really, the bottom line is both are right. Uh, one is probably more right, but they're both right. Uh, uh, but it's, but it's this idea. It's, it's the idea of the proper time. It could mean the eschatological event, the second coming of Christ. And of course, that's kind of obvious. You know, when that happens, all of this other stuff is done. You know, that's, that's, that's the reality there. And Peter has talked about the eschatological event in chapter 1, verses 5, and in chapter 2, verses 12. <clears throat> and, he, and he talks here about at the appropriate time. Uh, the New Testament uses that in some other places as well. It, it speaks of it in, in Acts 19, uh, 23, and in Romans 9, 9. It talks about Jesus was born at the proper time. Certain events in Jesus' life happened at the proper time. In other words, it's talking about God's predetermined time, when he decided it would happen. It's those kind of ideas. Uh, And the Lord lifts up the submitted, humble believer to take him out of suffering. Uh, that's 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 the other idea here is the other idea is that God will ultimately lift you out of whatever suffering you happen to be in at the time he determines, which is probably the most correct understanding in the context, although obviously the second coming takes care of it all. 
I think that's why Pastor Steve hopes that next Sunday we won't be here. You know, the second coming. Well, in this case, the rapture, but nevertheless. Uh, and then he goes on and he says, he says in verse 7, he says, As a result of this, therefore humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares or casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Cast is a word that means, uh, he says, cast all your cares. Uh, we see this. Uh, we see this idea expressed uh, in the Psalms in thirty-seven five and five twenty-two. In fact, I want to look at fifty-five twenty-two. Fifty-five twenty-two says, "Cast your burdens upon Yahweh, and He will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken." That's a that's a that's a promise from God the Father. He He is going to look after you. He's going to take care of you. He looks after the righteous. In Matthew six twenty five and thirty two, and of course Philippians four six, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, keep your request. Uh, uh, let your request be known to God. It would be helpful if I could read my handwriting sometimes. But at any rate, my L looked like a K. I don't <laughs> but anyway, at any rate, at any rate, he says. That's that's what the text says. To be anxious about nothing, I, you know, anxiousness causes a lot of actual physical problems. It causes heart palpitations. It causes your mind not to be able to think clearly. Uh, it causes us to sometimes to not be able to function. Um, those those kinds of things go on with anxiety. At the lower end, it just causes you a lot of grief and trouble and heartache. Yeah, but at the higher end, it can cause a lot of... I, I read one article that there are some of the unusual uh, ideas is it can cause eye trouble from being anxious. Those, those kind of things. God says not to be anxious, uh, but to cast everything on Him. Uh, being anxious uh, for the Christian undermines trust in God. That's, that's ultimately what it's doing. It's undermining trust in God's purposes. It's, it's saying, God, you don't know what you're doing. Look, uh, I'm, uh, this, is, this is really a bad thing for me. Uh, but he says, he says to cast them. He says to, to cast them. The, this word simply means to throw something. Uh, it could be to throw something, uh, throw something or throw something else or to throw someone Away from you is the idea that you cast something away from you. It's used. It's it's used interestingly in Luke nineteen thirty five for throwing a blanket over an animal. In this context, it's saying taking your anxiety and throw them on Jesus. That's ultimately the the idea here. That's that's what you do. He says all your anxiety. Whatever is troubling you, especially when facing trials and suffering. And we all fall victim to anxiety. But we need to remember this text. We need to run to Scripture. Uh, we, need to, we, need to, we need to go here, is the idea. Hebrews, Hebrews 13.6 says, So that we can confidently say, The Lord is my help. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? That's, that's where we need to be. So he's, he's, he starts out by, by cautioning the young men, or actually commanding the young men, to be subject to their elders. He tells all of us to be clothed in humility toward one another, putting each other first, being a servant of all, that kind of idea. He, go, he goes on from there, and he, and, he, and he tells us that you do this because God is opposed to the proud, 
to those who want to stand up and say, hey, I, I'm taking over here. Uh, I have some stories about that. We're not don't really have time to go into that today. But I, I, I was in a church where we had a guy do that. He he basically pulled off a classic military coup. Well, he was a colonel in the Air Force, so obviously it was a military coup. coup, coup. But anyway, uh, uh, to undermine the pastor and get rid of him. He accomplished his task. Uh, that church is now a uh, all-you-can-eat restaurant. You know, that's, that's, that's what he accomplished. Incidentally, this, this man, uh, within, within a year, although he was perfectly healthy, died of cancer in every organ in his body. God is an awesome God. He doesn't mess. He doesn't take lightly anybody putting their hands on his church. He'll let you make a thousand honest mistakes, but not purposed ones. Be careful. That's what is, that's the idea here. He says, "Cast all your cares on G, on G, cast all your cares." That's what he's saying here. Cast them all. God will not put up with the will not put up with the proud. He wants he wants people who bend the knee is the idea I think here. And 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 then you're not to you're not to let the troubles of this world weigh you down. You're to remember that He cares for you. That's that's the idea here. And then second, and then the second thing he sa- he tells us in this text, the second admonition or the second command or the second the second uh, exhortation that he brings to us. There's actually there was a number of those in that last text, but here he says he says, "Be sober in spirit, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, devour. But resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering." are being accomplished among your brethren who are in the world. And, and here he is, he's basically, I, I put this, be on guard. This is a call to alertness. This is a call to guard, to being uh, on guard. Not only are the elders who, who are tasked with the primary responsibility of guarding the flock, we're all to guard each other and to guard ourselves and to guard our families. All, the, all of those things are involved in this. He first of all says to be sober in spirit. He's used this word earlier in verse in chapter one, verse thirteen, and he used it also in, in seven four, and it, it carries the idea of using godly thinking. Look, look how he phrases it in chapter one, chapter one, verse thirteen. Therefore, having girded your mind for action, being sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a, a girded mind, a mind that's cinched up, that's sober, that's thinking rightly is the idea here. And in, and in 4 7, he, he says it, he puts it this way To the end of all, th- uh, uh, the end of all things that is, uh, is at hand, therefore be of sound thinking and sober spirit. Think rightly, soberly. That's that's what that's what he's saying here, uh, and and there it's basically for the purpose of prayer. When you come to prayer, it's to be it's to be you're to, you're to be thinking soundly, and you're to be sober in your spirit when you when you come there. He, he, that's what he's saying. He's saying it's used metaphorically here. Uh, it's uh, its primary meaning is to not be intoxicated. <laughs> it's the opposite of intoxication. Uh, but in this particular ver- uh, in this. This particular verse is being used metaphorically, and, and it, it has the idea of being balanced or orderly. 
both the life, the mind, and the body. First uh, Timothy two fifteen three two and Titus two two are all about all all speak to the same idea of being sober and and uh, being alert and being ready and being having a mind that is fixed and orderly balanced is the idea and then he goes on to and he, and he says uh, I mean basically it says think straight keep your thinking straight and and that's true if you're going to be a good guard you got to be thinking you know you you can't be asleep you got to be a thinking which is the next one he says be be watchful this is an imperative, and it basically means that. Stay awake. Stay awake. <clears throat> my, uh, my best friend that I grew up with, um, he, did, he, did, he did a dumb thing that he almost talked me into, but I didn't do it. He joined the Marine Corps and uh, went directly, well, not directly, but quickly thereafter to a beautiful vacation spot in Southeast Asia um, and uh, uh, where they he was on a what the Marine Corps called the cap patrols which were civil action patrols which basically meant they took a squad of Marines and put them in a Vietnamese village and they armed and taught the people how to fight and then guarded themselves so that they didn't get their throats cut in the night um, basically you slept two hours at a time and then he got up and he went on guard. And when he came home, he couldn't sleep more than two hours. Uh, that, that's that's guard. That's guarding. And in a war zone, if you fall asleep, you get you get court-martialed. You know, you go to prison, or you, in the World War II, you get shot. Uh, but at any rate, at any rate, my point here is, be watchful. And this, this is what God, this is what we're being called to: is to be watchful, uh, to be on alert, to be awake. To, to recognize what is going on about you. That's, that's the idea here. Uh, to, to know what's going on. These, these two ideas of, of being sober-spirited and being, being watchful, uh, they picture an individual that is self-controlled, alert to the events around him, who is ready to act. And who can be an effective guard. And then he, he goes on to, to tell us what we need to be on guard from and what we need to be, guard, to be a guard about. And he, and he, and he says this, he says, he says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's, that's the next thing he says. He says, your adversary, uh, basically that word means a legal opponent, is is the the basic meaning of the word it pictures an enemy who is seriously aggressively hostile that's that's what it pictures here and devil of course is the word uh, that that speaks of a a malicious enemy who slanders or attacks it basically means slanderer and that's that's what it's saying it's pointing to satan here and it and it says and it's it's you uh <clears throat> Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus, uh, three times in John tells us that he is the individual who currently controls the world system. John twelve thirty one, fourteen thirty, and sixteen eleven. All those verses, Jesus says he's the ruler of this world, 
He's, he's the one who controls this world. We live in a hostile environment is what this is pointing us to. We live in a hostile environment where our enemy is an aggressive predator. This is who prowls like a, a roaring lion. That's, that's, how he's, that's how he's being pictured here. A predator that is on the hunt. Uh, roaring is a, is a, is a word uh, that's used in, in Psalms 22.13 where he says, They open wide their mouths at me as a lion that tears and roars. That's, that's the picture here. It's a, it's a predatory animal. I, uh, we have some, some folks we know uh, that uh, have been on the mission, mission field for years now. And they, uh, they're with Campus Crusade. And for the, the first 20-something years of their life, they were in Africa. And uh, I think they're a little crazy, but uh, but that beside the point. Uh, they uh, he he was he was at our at our other church one time, and he was kind of giving a report, and he got to talking about a vacation they went on in Africa, and they went camping out in the wild, and he says it was so nice at night you could listen to the lions roar, and I thought what, <laughs> you know. He didn't have any problem. He was camping out. <laughs> But he says the lions roar. He says he says they devour. That's what it says here. This is a word that basically means to gulp down. That's what it means. It means to gulp down. It's the idea of destroying. Here is, here is the picture here that he gives to us. We need to be on guard because we face an enemy who is out to destroy us. That's the idea here. Of course, the other side of it is, Satan is like a roaring lion. We serve the true lion of Judah, Jesus Christ. That's, that's the other side of that. That's the balance point uh, well, that's not a balance. That puts the scales, bam, on the other side. And he says, he says, he, he goes on and he says, he says, but resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering you are, that are being accomplished among your brethren who are in the world. And, and he says here, he says, but resist him, firm in the faith. James chapter 4. Ah, there it is. Chapter 4, especially verse 7, but I want to pick up the context, uh, because the context really brings us out better. But he gives, verse 6, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, he says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble, our verse that we just talked about. And then he goes from there, James goes from there, and he says, he says, be subject, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And then he says, how you resist the devil? He says, by drawing near to God, he will draw near to to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinner, and purify your heart, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and cry. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. It sounds like what we've been hearing in the Beatitudes. And then he goes on to say, humble yourselves, therefore, in the presence of the of the Lord, and He will exalt you. Do not do not slander one another, brothers. Do, do not. Uh, 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 slander, rather, rather, 
Be humble yourselves, and he will exalt you. Do not slander one another, brothers. He who slanders a brother or a, a judges him. And he goes on to talking about judging. But the point here is, is that Satan is a defeated foe, and we can indeed resist him, and resist him by drawing close to the Lion of Judah is ultimately the, the point here. That's what, he, that is, that's what he's wanting to know. He tells us elsewhere, he says in Ephesians 6, to put on the whole armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against... Uh, against the schemes of the devil. Uh, the schemes of the devil are all the philosophies and programs and, and ideas that he places into the hands, uh, to, into the minds of unregenerate men uh, that, that then oppose God. And, in, and, in, and, uh, uh, and then he says, he says, resist both James and, and Peter both tell us that, that we are to be, in effect, a resistance movement uh, against Satan and his schemes. Uh, basically, in Ephesians six thirteen and fourteen, he tells us to take a stand against. Um, he tells us to take a stand against him. He, basically, in that text, he says, having done all you can, which is having put on the full armor of God. And earlier in the text, he says, having done all of that, stand. Having done all you can to stand, therefore stand. In other words, take your place, stand your ground is the picture, uh, the picture that he's giving here. He says there's no reason not to firm is the way he says it. it. The idea here is to make solid, to be balanced, firm, take your stand is the idea. And the, the stand you take it is in faith. In the faith is what he is saying here. Incidentally, faith is used in two ways in the New Testament. You probably know this if you've been around for a while. But faith is the personal faith. You know, I believe in, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's a personal statement of faith. Uh, here, uh, however, it's talking about the faith. It's talking about the body. Uh, you can put it in a number of ways. It's talking about the body of biblical doctrine, the apostolic teaching. It's it's talking about the uh, it's talking about the revealed word of God, all that is in, contained within it. Uh, Jude three, the once for all faith that God has fully revealed in His Word. That's that's what He's talking about here. We stand firm on the whole whole truth of scripture is what he's saying here the whole biblical doctrines we stand firm in who god is and all that he has revealed that's 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 what we are to do the idea is to resist by being firm in the full weight of biblical revelation trusting in the uh uh in this in the salvation provided by christ Instructed in the Spirit, all to the glory of God. That's 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 what that's what he's that's what he's telling us to do here. And then he he makes this statement. He says he says knowing knowing that the same experience of suffering are being accomplished among your brethren who are in the world. Accomplished is a word that's translated in a number of different ways. Different texts translated different ways. Some are experienced by. Some just say. The suffering they're suffering. Uh, uh, verse 10, and, and, and he's saying, he's saying you're, you're going to do this for a little while. And what, he, what he's saying in this text is, recognize the fact that you're not alone. You're not the only one who is suffering. Uh, Christians worldwide are suffering. 
I just read an article this morning about a young kid. I don't know if this kid's a Christian. He attends a Catholic school, but he took a biblical stance on gender, and he kind of announced it in class. And he goes to a Catholic school, and they threw him out. It's in Canada. Oh. Yeah, yeah they threw him out. Well, he went back to school. So they arrested him. And so they arrested him. You know, uh, that's, keep that in mind. Uh, I'm not even sure this guy is, you know, being Catholic, I'm not sure what his faith really is. Uh, but, but he certainly took a biblical stance on men and women. And it was all over bathrooms, of course. But he says here, knowing that there are other people suffering too, realizing that you're not alone in this. Uh, this is a corporate battle, if you will. We're all involved in this. Uh, realizing that a spiritual battle takes place worldwide. Second Corinthians, uh, Second Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, tells us about this battle and how we are to fight it. Where, where Paul wrote, writes, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the fleshly, but divinely powerful for the tearing down of strongholds as we tear down speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's the idea here. We are fighting an ideological war uh, against the government of Satan. That's, that's where we stand. In effect, that's what this kid did. He took a stand against the speculations of the nonsense about trying to break down God's creative order in men and women. And he's suffering for it. And Paul reminds us that we're not alone. Accomplished here, once again, is, is to experience. We're experiencing the same thing. Yeah, notice in, in verse 10, this suffering is just for a little while. Uh, before, and then it mentions glory. The two are mentioned together. The Christian waits. Uh, one commentator said this. I thought this was this good. I like this statement. He says, the Christian awaits not the end of suffering, but, the, but it's gold, the gold of that suffering which he's going to talk about now in verses, in verses 10 through 11 and becoming complete. These verses actually form a benediction and, and prayer, and then verse 11 is, is a doxology, and, and he, even though he's not finished with the book yet. But nevertheless, nevertheless, this is, he's finished with his primary teaching at this point. He says, After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, will himself restore, strengthen, confirm, and ground you. To him be might forever and ever. Amen. He says here, he says, first of all, he says, he's, P- Peter talks about... Uh, the gold, which is entering eternal glory, that's, that's the end of all of this. The end of, of, of our life on this earth, our, our, our temporary time on this planet is to enter into eternal glory. Uh, and, and, it's, and it can be preceded here by a short time of suffering. Notice in, in chapter 1, verse 6, he's already stated this. He said, it is uh, in this you greatly rejoice, even though for a little uh, for a little while 
if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. He goes, he goes you still rejoice in that because we look to the end. That's, that's the idea. Romans 8, um, 8, 18 says, For I consider that the suffering of this present age is not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. In other words, in other words, once we leave this planet, we won't even think about anything we went through here or any problems we had here. And he says, the God of all grace. And, it, and he's basically saying here, God is the source and the possessor and the giver of grace. In 2 Corinthians 1, uh, 1 through 3 is the only other place this phrase, or it's actually a similar one, is used. And it says, there he says, he's the God of all comfort. Uh, grace and comfort are 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 received from God Almighty. And then he goes on and he says, who called you to his eternal glory. It's not an invitation you accept or refuse. It's a divine summons. If you're a believer, this is where you're going. That's what it's saying here. This is, it's a divine summons when it, whether it's by rapture or the sec or, or, uh, or, or through death, you arrive in eternal glory. That's, that's the idea here. Uh, that's what he's he's wanting you to understand. Uh, you don't, and and this is an effectual call. It's resulting. It results from election. God chose to chose you. He sanctified you, and he summons you to obedience effectively in Christ. And it was all done according to Ephesians four one before you ever were, before the creation ever was, before the foundations of the world. And then he says, he goes on and he says, and, as, and he will restore you, he will strengthen you, he will, cons- he, will, he will confirm you, he will ground you. The NASB puts it, perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish. Uh, rest- the idea is, these words are all synonymous, and they're really hard to distinguish from and, and, to, and to tear apart. But the idea of restore is to perfect, to bring to wholeness. Strength is to confirm, and it's synonymous with establish, which, if you if you uh, if you uh, if you look at the uh, uh, strength and confirm are synonymous words, and and basically the the LVS and the NASB switch them, uh, but uh, uh, but it's to make sturdy, to stand, to set fast, and establish is to lay a foundation. That's what God is doing in you. He's bringing you to completeness. Completeness. This kind of defines. Sanctification. This is what goes on in that process. Uh, you're being you're being brought to wholeness. You're being made sturdy. You're being set fast. He's laid a foundation within you that can be built upon. That's that's the idea. Ephesians chapter three verses seven through nineteen. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you may be firmly rooted and grounded in the love, being able to comprehend with all the saints what the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses, which surpasses all knowledge. That's, that's the ultimate goal that he's talking about here. It's the idea of completeness, of strength, of immovability, uh, ability to stand confident of eternity. And then he gives the doxology in verse 11. Here Peter just breaks into a doxology resulting from the divine grace, sanctification, and glorification that he's been talking about. There's no command here. It's simply praise. And he says, he speaks of God's might, his 
dominion in the NASB. Uh, the word means strength. Here God is the one who, who has the ability to dominate everything, is the idea. He is the strength behind everything. He's all wisdom, power, authority, sovereignty, and he is totally worthy of praise. Revelation 4.8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. And he says, Amen, so let it be. Any comments or questions this morning? Yeah. So I hear multiple times that, you know, be careful with the devil or, or saying in the scriptures. Yeah. But it makes it seem like he's omnipresent, like if he's everywhere. But we know that he's not. Yeah. So what does it mean when Peter says that to people when he's not, like, in every individual's life? Well, he, you have to remember he has a whole, he has a third of the fallen of the angels who fell with him. Those are the, those are what give him the appearance of omnipresence because they're all around. Well, not all of them. Some of them are currently bound, but, but they're, they're, are, uh, they're around working with him. So it gives that appearance and he's not everywhere all the time. He's not all the time dealing with you. He goes away for a season just like he did with Jesus. Uh, but then he's going to come back, I mean, or one of his emissaries is going to come back and 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 attack somewhere else or some somehow. Uh, a lot of times it's just our own sinful flesh that yeah. that weakens and uh, and and succumbs to uh, to sin. Uh, but uh, but uh, uh, basically Peter is say, basically Peter is saying the power within us, the Holy Spirit within us, who is greater than He that is in the world, is is competent to uh, to uh, to to give us the power to resist and to stand firm and to be complete, to have a sturdy foundation, and that foundation is found here. It's found in it's found in our reliance on Jesus Christ, our submission to the Spirit, and our and our knowledge of the Word of God and knowing God is and this is how we know God is by studying His Word. So those are those are basically what Peter has has been telling us through this text uh, to uh, to to stand firm in the faith. That's what it means. Standing firm in the faith basically means that we have to know. Uh, I've got just now but anyway, okay <laughs> I'm being told to close, alright uh, Father God, we thank you and we uh, we, uh, we just ask your blessing as we as we go into our worship service this morning prepare us for it uh, that we might, uh, we might glorify you all the more for we thank you in Jesus name, Amen